0: Well, um, compatibilism suggests that two, two things, or perhaps more than two things, are compatible, uh, hence compatibilism. And these two things, uh, in modern compatibilism, are causi- causation, are compatible with human responsibility, cause that, that, that uh, human a- human agency, human free agency, is causal, that is to say, um, uh, cho- choices are made in the light of wants and other drives uh, in our in our personalities, uh, and uh, uh, so it's a me- it's a it's a middle middle position between libertarianism uh, on the one hand uh, and uh, some kind of fatalism or physical, physical uh, determinism uh, on the other. Uh, compatibilism is to be thought of as this sort of piggy in the middle.
1: Does doctrine really matter? The apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine, and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One of the most controversial topics when it comes to soteriology is, the, well, the doctrine of the freedom of the will. To our listeners, you may uh, have explored this doctrine. Perhaps you've picked up uh, any, any number of authors. It could be a John Calvin or it could be a Jacob Arminius. Perhaps it's a John Wesley or maybe someone like Francis Turton. But whoever it is, uh, I, I'm guessing this is not new to you. You are familiar with some of the debate that's raged. It's not a new debate by any means uh, over free will, but uh, it's an old debate, an ancient debate, in fact, that goes all the way back to the days of, of even Augustine himself. But did you also know that in recent Years, there's been discussion even within and among reformed thinkers and and not just theologians but historians over how to understand free will and the freedom of the will within what we might call the reformed tradition. And some of that discussion, even debate, dare I say, has revolved around uh, different individuals, historical thinkers uh, going back to someone like a Francis Turton or even a John Calvin up to uh, more recent uh, reformed Scholastics and uh, this discussion has been quite a lively one now of, of course uh, you know as a academic myself I'm I'm uh, a bit privy to this discussion as it's taking place in journal articles though, more recently in books, but uh, I I imagine that actually it's a discussion that could be quite relevant and interesting and fascinating even to those uh, who are pastoring in the church or those new students who are entering college and seminary as well. One theologian and philosopher who has written recently on this uh dialogue and discussion and debate within reform circles is, uh, none other than Paul Helm himself. Uh, Paul Helm <laughs> was professor of the history of, and philosophy of religion at King's college for many, many years. He also taught, uh, for many years at the university of Liverpool and then Regent college in Vancouver. Uh, some of you may know him from his many books, uh, Maybe Calvin and the Calvinists, his his book, The Providence of God, John Calvin's Ideas. He's even written a book recently called Human Nature from Calvin to Edwards. But the book I want to draw your attention to today is called Reforming Free Will, a conversation on the history of reformed views on compatibilism. And here, Paul is focusing on the years 1500 to 1800. This book is published with Mentor, a division of Christian Focus Publications, and it's in a series called REDS. Well, we nicknamed it REDS. Uh, REDS stands for Reformed Exegetical and Doctrinal Studies. And I am really privileged not just to be an editor of this series, but to be a co-editor with my good friend, John Fesco, JV Fesco, who I'm sure so many of you know, and uh, goodness, John doesn't even need an introduction, but he is the Harriet Barber Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology at uh, RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson. Uh, you may know John uh, from his books, such as, uh, well, mo- most recently his book called Reforming Apologetics, Retrieving the Classic Reformed Approach to Defending the Faith with Baker Academic. Of course, he's also written a more academic book with Oxford on the Covenant of Works, uh, just released, and Let me just say it is well worth your time. Well, uh, on the the Credo podcast, we usually just have one guest, but we have uh, quite the opportunity for you today to have both Paul Helm and J.V. Fesco uh, here on the line in the studio, so to speak. Paul, John, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo podcast.
0: Nice to be with you, uh, as they say. At this point, yes. Very nice.
3: <laughs> yes, it's great started. to be with you. Yeah, it's fantastic to be with you guys. Now,
2: uh, Paul, uh, John, tell us a little bit about, uh, I mean, here we're you know all, all joining each other, but we're certainly uh, across different parts of the world. Paul, tell us where, where you are uh, at this moment.
0: At uh, this moment, um, I'm in rural Gloucestershire, uh, which is uh, to the west of Oxford. Fifty miles or so, uh, and to the east of Cheltenham, uh, which is a a, a, um, a large town uh, nearby, and we've been here about ten, eleven years.
2: And John, I'm guessing you're not, uh, you, you're you're just uh, a little ways away. Am I right?
3: That's right. Just, uh, just a little bit South in Jackson, Mississippi.
2: Okay. And, uh, of course, those of you who have followed, uh, not only Paul, but, but, uh, uh, John have know that, uh, he's picked up a post there at, uh, RTS and, and we're really excited to see, uh, all that you're doing there, John, uh, just really encouraging. Um, but I, you know, John, you and I—we've edited a number of books in this series so far on a range of different topics, and um, this book in particular uh, by Paul. Uh, maybe you could could just frame the discussion. I'm guessing that for some mm-hmm. of our listeners, maybe even those who are you know regular readers of theology or even philosophy, may have missed this this whole discussion. So. What exactly is is uh, is Paul up, Paul up to here?
3: <laughs> All right, well, let me, as you said, let me frame the discussion just a little bit, and then we definitely want to turn it over to Paul so that he can talk about his book. But let's say that in the last 20 years or so, there have been a number of historians that have engaged in discussion and debate over the precise nature as to how early modern Reformed theologians relate the doctrine of the decree, or more generally, God's sovereignty, to the concept of human free will, as you noted in your introductory remarks. To borrow the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, how do we understand that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, but on the other hand, it also says neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. We could also coordinate those statements with other statements that the confession makes, for example, about free will, uh, where it says in the ninth chapter that God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. Uh, in addition to this, what the confession has to say about the doctrine of providence is also relevant in that God upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures actions and things and orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes either necessarily freely or contingently so there's a sense in which everybody agrees with all of the pieces that are on the table but as to how we exactly relate them that's where uh, uh, some of the discussion comes to the to the fore and so at the outset of the debate there were a group of dutch historians uh, and philosophers and theologians led by Antoine Voss from the University of Utrecht, who argued that early modern reform theologians were influenced by, among many others, medieval theologian John Duns Scotus, and he, they promoted what uh, they call synchronic contingency. Uh, and a book exploring these themes that uh, contained a lot of primary source texts with commentary was published uh, by Baker a- Academic Press, *Reformed Thought on Freedom*. And it was edited by, among others, by Willem van Asselt. And uh, the, uh, then, then, in addition to this, uh, we, uh, you know, Dr. Helm went and uh, published some essays where he engaged them in discussion and debate, challenging some of their claims. Well, along the way, uh, Richard Muller, who's probably no uh, stranger to our listeners, uh, also entered the discussion, and he he wrote an essay on Jonathan Edwards expressing how he believed that Edwards's views were significantly different than the uh, early modern reform tradition, specifically on these issues as it relates to contingency and, and freedom of the will. And so uh, Dr. Helm has engaged Dr. Muller on these issues in several essays, and this has led Dr. Muller to publish a couple of books, one entitled Divine Will and Human Choice, Freedom, Contingency, and Necessity in Early Modern Reform Thought. That was published about three and a half years ago, and then more recently, he's just published last year, Grace and Freedom, William Perkins and the Early Modern Reformed Understanding of Free Choice and Divine Grace. And so among a number of the points that Dr. Muller raises in his essays and his books is the question, for example, as to whether or not contemporary schools of thought, such as compatibilism versus libertarianism or determinism, are the best terms and ideas used to describe early modern reform views. Dr. Muller doesn't think so. And so this brings us to Dr. Helm's book. And as Matthew, you mentioned his contribution to the Red Series. And so in order to, to kind of segue uh, into the next point in our discussion here, I want to talk to you, Dr. Helm, and ask you to set the discussion up in terms of I've we've thrown a number of terms around synchronic contingency, there's diachronic contingency, compatibilism, determinism, libertarianism, and other terms. Can you dial in the discussion for our listeners to, to talk about those key terms that you think would help orient them to this discussion uh, so that we can then from there jump into uh, the topic of your the various chapters that you unfold in the book?
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah, I'll try. Uh, um, uh, (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, Tall order. Um, Perhaps I I could approach it this way, that this, this book has been put into a series of books on theology, but there is no, in Scripture, there is no material to enable us to expound a revealed view of human agency uh, in the same way that uh, we can construct a doctrine of justification uh, or on effectual calling or some such doctrine as that, where the scriptures are very clear, uh, I think, uh, with both those topics, but less so in the case of Anthropology and within the th- anthropology, uh, less with the freedom of the will, um, and this is not helped by the fact that that phrase "freedom of the will" uh, is, has been capable of m- multiple uh, applications in the history of thinking about this, it's going back from the classics uh, and then uh, um, in in Christian. Theology in connection with Augustine, and then the Scholastics, and then uh, a man who I'm uh, very interested in, but we haven't mentioned yet today, Jonathan Edwards and his reliance, among others, on John Locke. Edwards wrestling with the beginnings of the Enlightenment and of early Enlightenment uh, philosophers like John Locke and George Berkeley, or Berkeley, as you might say. Uh, he encountered both these and others, uh, and uh, was able to uh, I think we might say um, uh, address theology and from some of that perspective. And my book is Partly to do with trying to entangle that together with what John has mentioned in connection with the Dutch people uh, and the uh, Scotus to try to make uh, uh, a clear a clear case for uh, what I call or what is called these days. Uh, um, uh, as compatibilism, uh, uh, that is to say, uh, uh, a, a kind of determinism uh, in which people are free in the sense of they're doing uh, when they're doing what they want to do, uh, uh, and the, these wants are not. Uh, um, uh, um, let me try to put, put it more, more clearly. They're not, the, um, they're their own wants they're not uh, in positions on alien of alien sources um, the other thing I need to say in general is that um, I reckon Richard Muller to be a friend of mine and I was very keen uh, to think on both on the one hand he is incorrect in the view that he's taken uh, as you can see in those Writings already mentioned to us, he was uh, um, but, but, but um, uh, I wanted to um, have a serious discussion with him, but one that doesn't jeopardize our our friend our our, our friendship. and I hope I've achieved that. Uh, I've tried to be be as courteous and as clear and as fair. Uh, as I can uh, be uh, when using his data and uh, uh, seeking to evaluate um, uh, uh, what the implications of it are in the area of free will. Does that answer your question?
3: That's a good setup uh, to to the discussion. And uh, I can at least say from the outset, and I think Matthew and I definitely agree upon this, that the way that we've observed, you know, particularly you and Dr. Mueller in your exchanges, there's a sense in which you're trading intellectual blows, but you're landing them very cleanly without insult and with great charity. And to me, you know, at least one of the things that commends this book, as well as, you know, the overall discussion is in an age that's filled with just invective and insult. And all kinds of animosity, it's a real example of two Christian scholars uh discussing a topic charitably with one another that I think really sets a a, a tremendous example uh for so many people to follow. So I do think you hit it right on the uh, the, the, the head on the nail uh or the head of the nail on that so you know I, I don't know matthew I, I don't know if you have any observations at this point to make, but
2: no I, and I'm glad that you brought that up, Paul and John because. Uh, this this treatment of yours, Paul, I think, it, and I've pointed others to it uh, for this very reason. I think that on the one hand, you know, you're challenging uh, you're you're challenging uh, s- s- this interpretation of of the reformed, and um, but at the same time, and, and you're simultaneously defending uh, your uh, compatibilist reading. Of of the tradition, but at the same time you're recognizing. I mean, even even the book itself, right? It really, uh, it's not a surface level. It, it it really does go into to to depth to say, oh, well, let's actually, I'm I'm going to take this seriously and engage with with the very ideas that are being argued. So yeah, I think in that sense, it's, it is exemplary.
0: That's very kind of you to say that. That's, that was one of my chief. Aims. The other uh, general uh, aim I have is to fit, try and fit this area uh, it, into a wider historical framework than Richard and I together uh, have been doing. Our, our um, um, differences have been largely to do with, as you might expect from Muller, uh scholasticism and with he says Edwards's departure from scholastic views of free will uh and so the, the the first two uh chapters in the book or the first two substantive uh chapters in the book have to do with Luther and in the bondage of the will and Calvin uh uh, likewise, in various of his uh, um, uh, works, uh, and uh, and the later the later uh, discussion of it all, it really has this as its beginning, uh, when of course there is a two far a two uh, sorry it's a twofold uh, meaning attaching to the 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 lack of free will, uh, on the one hand, it's uh, a lack of indeterminism or libertarianism, uh, as John has uh, mentioned. Uh, and in, in the second half, uh, it's in the second uh, application, it uh, has to do with the, the bondage of the will Morally and spiritually, so that the motivation of the will uh, is uh, subject to the fall and the loss that the righteousness that the fall brought on the uh, on the race uh, and also on the redeemed, because unless you're a perfectionist of some kind, uh, indwelling sin. Is a, a corrupting force which is um, does not shake. We're not shaken free of that uh, until we come in, in into our into the glory that Christ has purchased for us. And so the the work, the book begins in pro- properly uh, in with with uh, some way in, so to speak. Having had those two chapters, and then we get on to uh, the the Dutch, uh, the Dutch, the way the Dutch argue, and the way that uh, (coughs) that um, uh, Richard Muller uh, has been influenced by them, though not altogether uh, agreeing uh, with them, so much so that he thinks that it's not accurate to say that. Um, that Jonathan Edwards is within the reformed camp. Edwards clearly says in his preface to the book that the doctrine that the freedom of the will, his book The Freedom of the Will uh, enunciates uh, is the, the same doctrine as his forebears. And it's not It's not in any way Edwards' desire to um, be be, be novel in his doctrine, Uh, but it is written in a different English style uh, from that of scholasticism, which was, by his time, beginning to break up for various reasons. And the Enlightenment is... Is beginning to show itself
2: now, Paul. uh, You know you've mentioned Edwards as an example. Um, Maybe we could even just back up a tad and talk about someone like Calvin, and then uh, after him, uh, Francis Turretin. Can you explain what is the the main some of the main differences between how you are? Uh, reading someone like Calvin and or or a Turretin, uh, and the type of view of, of freedom you believe they hold, and uh, what's the difference between your reading and this? Um, well, this group of Dutch theologians, as well as uh, someone like Mueller himself.
0: Yes. Well, the, the, the Dutch people, and particular particularly Voss, is is a philosopher uh, and he he he's interested in in what he has to say on the top topic uh of, of phil- philosophical uh, driving forces and in particular uh he's lighted upon uh, Dun scotus uh as being in my view an extreme uh holding an extreme view of human Freedom, uh, uh, but he praises it as someone uh, who, by his writing, uh, delivers reformed theology from misstepping in in this misstepping in this particular area. Uh, so, uh, I, I, I it's more with it's more with the application of that group of um, thinkers upon Muller that interests me in the book uh, and in, perhaps I could do it this way um, for a long time in his career uh, <clears throat> Richard Muller uh, was not prepared to use the word compatibilism uh, um, of the view of the reformed the scholastic reformed uh, and uh, he, he thinks that Compatibilism it comes from the, the Enlightenment, from Hobbes, from Locke, uh, from uh, people of that uh, era and kind. He won't have it associated with Reformed theology. Um, I have tried to respect that concern in the book, uh, and I, I've succeeded. To this degree that Muller will now use the word compatibilism uh, of mm. Edwards and people who think uh, like like him and in his later writings he's a little bit more uh, free and easy with this with this c- terminology
2: maybe it would be helpful to to find compatibilism um, so you're you're making the argument uh, for example that not just with Edwards but with those before him, such as Calvin or Turton, though there's there's many others, uh, re- reform scholasticism, as we might call it. Um, you're making the argument that uh, they held to a type of compatibilism, to one degree or another. Could you define for our listeners what is compatibilism, and and how then would that differ uh, from, say, uh, a libertarian? View of freedom.
0: Yes, thank you very much. I'll do that. I'll try to do that. Well, um, compatibilism suggests that two two things, or perhaps more than two things, are compatible. Uh, hence, compatibilism. And these two things, uh, in modern compatibilism, are caus- causation are compatible with human responsibility. Cause that that uh, Human, a- human agency, human free agency, is causal. That is to say, um, uh, cho- choices are made in the light of wants and other drives uh, in our in our personalities. Uh, and uh, uh, so, it's a me- it's a it's a middle middle position between libertarianism. Uh, on the one hand, uh, and uh, some kind of fatalism or physical physical, uh, determinism, uh, on the other. Uh, Compatibilism is to be thought of as, as this sort of piggy in the middle. And it has the virtues of establishing that our choices have causes uh, and and yet, unless unless we are coerced into doing what we do, a gun is a gun is held to our head, or some such like some such some, some such wants, preferences, uh, likings arise in our minds, and do we want to 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 to, ha- to have our agency governed by these? Uh, perfectly straightforward.
2: So that. Uh, definition of freedom. Um, you call it a, a, a compatibilist view of freedom. Uh, pr- there's other labels that have been used: uh, freedom of inclination or a freedom of spontaneity. Yes. H- how does that differ uh, from, say, a libertarian view of freedom?
0: The strongest view of lo- of, of the view of the will is Scotus's, and it goes like this: that imagine there is a world. In which I exist, uh, and about in, in uh, that world to make a choice, Scotus, Scotus holds that that world could be, well, then that make a choice A, say, um, in that world, I, I could also have the power to, ch- to choose not A or B. That my will has the strength. Of making an alternative choice, even though we uh, obliterate obliterate from our understanding any reference to causation, the will overrides any causal power or powers, uh, and we can have an and 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 there can be an alternativity. Sometimes I use that expression. to, to, to uh, refer to libertarianism in the book is, uh, is a doctrine of alternativity uh, of a very strong case. Mm. Uh, whereas for the compatibilist, there are how, or why I have chosen a and not B or not A is because there has been something about the situation of a uh, that is different from the situations. Of not A or B. Scotus's uh, doctrine of freedom, sometimes called uh, Franciscan freedom, because of that strength that it has, and which is character characteristic in the Roman Church of uh, those who follow uh, uh, the Franciscan order, as indeed Scotus himself did.
2: Maybe uh, we could. You know, put a bit of flesh on this. As um, you are making your case, Paul, for uh, a compatibilist freedom, and you're reading, you're reading the reform tradition that in that direction from Calvin to Turretin, yes, to uh, reform scholasticism. And for our listeners, when we use a a, a label like reform scholasticism, here we are not. Ref- Referring to the 16th century per se, but um, you know when we think of the Reformation, but the period after that, in which we have uh, a number of uh, outstanding uh, thinkers. Um, I mean, we we early, very early on, we might put our fingers on a Turretin, but of course that tradition is 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 a very extensive one. Uh, I mean, we we could think, for example. of someone like Voetius or John Owen. Um, uh, we could think of, uh, you know, so many others. But as as you're engaging that tradition, Paul, um, how do, so now you've defined, okay, compatibilism and, and uh, over against libertarian freedom. How does that, these differences, how, how do they really take on flesh as, in, in your reading of this Reformed tradition, how do they take on flesh when it comes to say, their doctrine of God, their view of uh, salvation and, and so much more?
0: Well, they were part of a, they were part of a scholastic way of uh, conditioning uh, uh, theology and particularly um, of anthropology and and these going back, Really, to people like Augustine, at least it began with people like Augustine, the mind, human mind, is what they call a a, a mix of faculties. So we have faculty psychology becoming relevant in the 16th and 17th centuries, in which the intellect makes uh, a choice. Uh, and your will is subordinate to the choice that it makes and it, the, mil, the, the, the the will is so to speak the exact ex- executing agency uh, of the of the mind wanting to do whatever it is uh, and that relationship between intellect and will if you look carefully at intro, uh, Turretin, for example, is clearly deterministic. That is to say, our intellect determines the choice, and the choice is executive. Uh, And he says it's like a marriage where uh, um, the two are coupled together to be one. Uh, In the case of uh, the choice, likewise, the two are coupled together. With the one subordinate to the other, as as he as he says in one of his discussions, mm. someone who is not a compatibilist with him uh, treats treats what he has to say about the will as an example of some kind of Scotus view of the power of the will, and um, as I said earlier, though not as strong as Voss himself, uh, Muller. It still still retains this kind of way of thinking of the will. The will itself has a will, uh, uh, and that's something that, following Locke, uh, Edwards thought thought. If 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 you think like that, you you um, you're on the verge of some kind of in, infinite in, infinite rejection. Re-
2: now, John, maybe I. Uh I could turn uh, attention to you for a second here. I mean, you have a lot of um, background studying um, the Reformed tradition at large, of course, but Mm -hmm. um, specifically, you know, any number of individuals within what we're calling reformed scholasticism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on the one hand, it's a, it's a big, you know, it's a, it's a big era, a big tradition. Um, and, and, you know, we certainly don't want to, um, you know, oversimplify it, that sort of thing. But at the same time, there is a, a pretty steady stream of continuity, I think we could say. And, and Paul has even written on this, um, it, arguing uh, for continuity over against maybe a Calvin versus the Calvinist type interpretation. Um, it, seems, it seems to me that so much of the debate, you know, between someone like Paul who's arguing for a compatibilist reading uh, of everyone from you know, someone like Calvin all the way up through Edwards versus uh, some of these uh, Dutch thinkers like Voss or philosophers like Voss or, or some, a more historian like uh, Moeller himself who are reading it more in the direction of what Paul calls indeterminism. It seems like this uh, this debate... Does also have almost a history behind the history, if I could put it that mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it has to do with okay, who, who's, w- with any number of individuals, whether we're talking about um, a John Owen, a Turretin, um, Oetius, uh, or or someone later like an Edwards. Um, you know, as is the case with all of us, we're we're influenced by those who've come before us, uh, for better or worse. Who maybe you could help us here? Who are some of the? It, influencing, uh, voices when you come to say someone like a Turretin or an Edwards. And, 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 um, I mean, he, maybe Paul has something to say here. Cause I know Paul, you make the argument that, um, yes, you know, with someone like Edwards, he, you, you even mentioned it, he's influenced, uh, in certain ways. He's sympathetic to some, someone like Locke, uh, certain philosophical distinctions, Though, Paul, you also make the argument that, nonetheless, that shouldn't push him too far to think he would be incompatible with someone like Turretin. John, maybe you could just start shedding some light on this. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that I try to tell my students is that when we're reading theology, we can't automatically assume just especially because we're reading most theology in English translation, that um, say somebody like a, a Turretin versus somebody like say Edwards are necessarily doing theology in the same philosophical context. I think mm. before we you know got on the podcast, we talked about a little bit about you know how important it was to to study philosophy, and in fact. Um, while that was, I mean, I, 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 I had a major in, um, philosophy of religion in my master's degree at the same time, I've got, um, Copleston's volume one here sitting on my desk as I'm making my way through it. And, and the the long project is to try to get all the way through all of those volumes, <laughs> but, uh, you know, just to try to bone up on so many of these categories, but say, for example, when you go from a Turretin to, um, and Edwards, as, uh, as Dr. Helm has noted, there's a philosophical shift where you go from pre-modern or you could say maybe early modern philosophical assumptions to modern or enlightenment philosophical assumptions. And so one of the one of the big um, one of the big uh, cruxes, if you will, in this whole discussion is for somebody like a Turretin who holds to a view of um, the faculty psychology Intellect, will, and affections, as uh, as um, as Dr. Helm has noted, you know, it, when Edwards speaks of freedom of the will, is is he talking about the same uh, set of faculties, uh, or has he uh, in any way uh, set aside his understanding of those faculties? And so, in the discussion, I know that uh, you know Richard Muller, you know, takes the view that. No, Edwards doesn't hold to the same faculty psychology, or as Dr. Helm does say, no, he, he thinks that they're, they're, they're at least somewhat, uh, compatible if, if only being discussed under, under different terms. And so as that comes into the fore, you know, as Richard Muller has raised the question, when you're reading somebody like Edwards, he notes in the initial or in the initial version or publication of Edwards's book, it wasn't freedom of the will. Uh, The definite article was not a part of the original title, but freedom of will. And so that he says that a lot of people think that Edwards is talking about the the faculty psychology, which is the same view as Turretin. And so that's where one of the questions you have to decide and you have to, you know, as you read not only the primary sources, but then read, for example, somebody like Dr. Helm and then Dr. Muller is, are Edwards and Turretin uh, employing the same faculty psychology? And you know if they are okay, then are they are they going to be discussing these issues in a similar fashion if they're not uh then in what way is Edwards more say of a determinist versus um you know uh a turreton speaking more in terms of a uh, a freedom of the will as in the faculty psychology uh but in terms of say more classic reform theology? So that, that's one of the first big, you know, the big, big picture issues there. And then I think the second issue that, that Dr. Helm has raised, you know, is the whole question of does, does the modern, uh, discussion and categories of compatibilism, determinism, and libertarianism, does that fit the, uh, the, the, the discussion in terms of the early modern discussion versus the contemporary discussion? And so I know that, you know, as uh, as uh, Dr. Helm has noted here in our discussion, that Richard Muller has conceded at least partially on one of these points to say that, OK, there is some resemblance between early modern views, say like of a Turretin and then later reform or contemporary views today, if we're talking about compatibilism. And he says that the point of disagreement isn't between uh, isn't over this particular issue you know he says that you know he, his own views and the editors say of the reform thought on freedom Willem van Asselt and and these dutch dutch uh philosophers and theologians say that okay there is some kind of formal similarity between modern compatibilism and the older tradition uh but he also argues that there there's there's a major difference uh in that it, it comes into the discussion that or uh, dr helm i think if i paul if i'm not saying this correctly then please correct me but that you argue that there's an indeterminate freedom of the will or an indeterminate freedom that you don't think is present uh in the earlier tradition uh do, do, do i is that right it, am i correct in the way that i'm saying that
0: well i think i think you're being fairly fair there there is another point to this which we we've not mentioned so far that mm-hmm. namely that um roman catholic theologians of that period are, are either outright pelagian or semi-pelagian and you 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 require for semi-pelagianism for example uh, 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 you, you, you have uh, that um, the will has uh, is a, a choice itself. Uh, it it is helped by God, but d- the decision as to whether you are uh, you become a Christian or not depends on your will, which you might exercise for, or you might. Exercise against. Uh, and it, it struck me as uh, completely unhysterical, uh, unhoster- hysterical, <laughs> that uh, people of the era of the Jesuits and of middle knowledge uh, and all that, uh, were they to uh, themselves subscribe uh, to a, a strong view of the will? Uh, would be uh that would be an extremely weak uh position to hold and the uh semi-pelagians would regard them as co religionists but they have not they haven't done what is it that has kept them from semi-pelagianism in that in those eras or that era uh of the late late 16th uh, uh, and beginning of the 17th Uh, Well, I say what is an Augustinian view of effectual grace, in which God's grace is the the, the preponderating influence on regeneration, uh, and the will has uh, uh, not the strength that the semi-Pelagianists, Roman Catholic semi-Pelagians, or Arminians, uh, came to espouse. You see, that in Territin's book, when he deals with very many of the, the loci in the book, uh, he deals with the position of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagian, which is to distance himself from both. And I say he can only distance in, be distancing himself from both consistently if he applies uh, a, a doctrine of effectual calling, which is basically uh, determinism very strongly.
2: Paul, uh, towards the end of your, towards the end of your book, um, you you have this section where you you say you want to get to the the crux of the matter, and, and perhaps that would be uh, an ideal place to, to to bring our conversation to a conclusion. Um, at, at one point, you make um, you make the statement that. Freedom is free from compulsion, not the occurrence of alternativity. No,
0: no, no, no it's not that. It's, but uh, fully consistent with causation.
2: Okay, so f- fully consistent.
0: So what I say, I, I, let me just read a little bit of what I said in, in under the heading The Cuts of the Matter question mark. Yes. Paid, uh, page 227. Two, two What I've tried to show in this chapter by interrogating a number of R.O. theologians, Reformed Orthodox theologians, and comparing them with Edwards, is that for them the intellect broadly understood and the will are closely related, but that the connection between them is asymmetrical. In what sense? That the the action of the intellect is prior to that of the will, and no doubt there are occasions in which there is a gap between the two. We have a gap in time between the two. We have seen that some of the RO had a more unitary understanding of the relation between the two faculties, like Edwards. Uh, They are the powers of a simple soul. To say that the intellect leads the will is not to say that the sequence is a temporal, causal one, The relation between means and end is the scholastic account of the practical reason. That that is a distinction of the reason. Turretin made a clear distinction between the intellect and the will, yet he called their actions together a marriage. That is, such an arrangement, there is action of the will at each stage, which is covered by the distinction between licit will and imperate will. That that takes us perhaps more uh, into more detail. The argument is that such a relation is compatibilistic. The voluntarist alternative, in which the will and and the will and has either synchronically uh, and simultaneous and uh, or diachronically simultaneous, that comes to be Mother's view uh, eventually, is prior and allegedly the intellect follows, is open to the obvious objection that the action, acting first or alone, is irrational or random. Freedom is free from compulsion, not from the occurrence of pure alternativity. There is no middle position between these two kinds of freedom.
2: For those of you who are uh, listening uh, this is um, Paul Helm. Here is referring to uh, really his concluding summary uh, of his of his argument, where he tries to get the very crux of the issue. And as as you just heard from him, uh, he is here trying to distinguish between uh, not just two interpretations of the reform, but specifically argue for uh the type of freedom he's he's calling compatibilist freedom here as as he just said a freedom uh free from compulsion but not the uh as he just mentioned um not one that would uh give itself over to um a freedom of contrary choice or or what he's calling a libertarian freedom and paul is is here uh kind of putting the dividing line right down the middle saying that there's no middle position between these two types a freedom uh, that's that may be important to say uh, given uh on the contemporary scene uh so often um and i encounter this with students so much that they think well isn't there a third way <laughs> uh that that yes. that sort of mentality before we we cl- we close um you know I, I i would just say to our listeners uh pick up paul helms book reforming free will i think that you will find this um, Not just intriguing, but also um, a a helpful uh, introduction to uh, this this debate that's occurring. And um, but but I do want to say, Paul, not only thank you for writing this book um, and uh, giving giving the rest of us a chance to see you know someone who's as you know experienced as you uh, take on other uh, major theologians, but I'd also like to say, you know, John, maybe you have some recommendations to our listeners before we wrap it up, you know, as they're thinking through not just contemporary sources, but, uh, maybe they've never read some of the, the historical voices that, uh, whether it's a Richard Muller or a Paul Helm, um, Mm -hmm. that they're engaging with, uh, where should they start? Who should they, they start reading?
3: Yeah, I think that if we're talking primary sources, a number of the, uh, the sources that, uh, that Dr. Helm has mentioned already are definitely noteworthy. Uh, you know, we would want to look at, say, uh, Martin Luther's uh, Bondage of the Will. Uh, John Calvin has written a similar treatise, uh, that, uh, that is, I'll go, I think it goes by a similar title. Uh, so, you know, Calvin and Luther on those. Francis Turretin is going to give you one of the more carefully dissected um you know explanations of the whole discussion and uh and then of course there's the uh Edwardsian classic which is you know freedom of the will uh which he wrote and so you would want to take a look at those primary source texts another book of, along that vein is to look at uh the book edited uh, called reformed thought on freedom edited by Willem Willem van Asselt and several other dutch scholars in that while the book does have their commentary and their explanation uh, of these various texts. It also has primary source text translations from uh, Heisbert Futius, from Franciscus Gomaris, uh, and from Francis Junius, and other key early modern reform theologians on this specific topic, so that you can, you know, set aside the commentary initially and just read those primary source texts, and then. Uh, As you've noted here, there's Dr. Helm's book that, you know, appears in the Red Series. You could also look at uh, Dr. Muller's book, as I mentioned at the, uh, you know, front end of our podcast here, Divine Will and Human Choice. That's where he goes into these uh, questions, uh, you know, pretty uh, and pretty very much in a whole lot of detail. And then same thing with his uh, recent book on William Perkins, published by Oxford University Press just last year, Grace and Freedom. Uh, he doesn't dwell just alone specifically on those issues He his book is a, a bit more widely cast than that but at the same time he do touches he does touch upon them and so uh i would you know re- really commend uh, those uh, those books and uh you know start with the primary sources and then wade on in into the discussion and uh, i've used that word uh, very deliberately discussion uh just because i think that that's the way that this this uh, whole uh, you know, um, uh, you know, exchange of ideas has uh, unfolded here, uh, whether it's been in essays or in books, is that mm-hmm. it's been a gent- gentlemanly and charitable discussion. And uh, once again, I really would commend it to our listeners here to say that it's a, it's a model of how to conduct uh, a discussion when there are differences of opinion. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's commendable, for, most certainly for that.
2: Paul, uh, I think I, I can say on behalf of both, you know, myself and John, just a, a huge thank you uh, for, for taking time to come on the Credo podcast like this. Uh, I, oh, wow. you, you know, you, you've spent really a lifetime, uh, your career, um, putting forward so, so many crucial uh, doctrines of the faith, uh, both theologically, philosophically, but then also historically. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. Very welcome. Now you can fill up
1: on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation. A conversation where doctrine matters.